Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. Worthy worship. John chapter 4 today. John chapter 4. It's a passage that you've probably uh, read numerous times as you've studied the life of Christ. But John chapter 4, we're in part 5 of this series uh, called Stuff Every Christian Should Know. Um, while you're turning to John chapter 4, let me just tell you, one Sunday morning, little Alex stared at the large memorial plaque that hung in the foyer of the church. And the seven-year-old had been staring at the plaque uh, some, I mean, intently for some time. And so the pastor walked up, stood beside Alex and said quietly, good morning, Alex. Good morning, said the boy, still absorbed in the plaque. Uh, Pastor, what is this? Well, son, all of these people have died in the service, the pastor said. And soberly, they stood together staring at the large plaque. And then little Alex quietly asked, uh, which one, the 815 or the 1045? <laughs> you know, church, our worship is something that should be alive with the sound of praise. It should be worthy worship. Before we dive into this topic, though, I want to give you my, my basic, my working definition of worship, okay? So worship really is a recognition of who God is. And then that's coupled with an appropriate demonstration of praise, awe, thanksgiving, or celebration. All right, let me repeat that. Worship is a recognition of God for who He is, coupled with an appropriate demonstration of praise, awe, thankfulness, or celebration. Now, the Bible tells us that God inhabits the praises of His people. Worship is something that's meant to be a, a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. But how often do we fail to give him a worthy offering when we kind of just half-heartedly go through the motions? Before we dive into this particular text, let me give you some context, some background here. What's happened is that Jesus and his disciples are passing through Samaria. And here in John chapter 4, we read about this encounter between Jesus and this Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And the way this plays out it just flew in the face of, of cultural norms, Jewish cultural norms. I mean, women were not treated with great respect in the first century. In fact, to some uh, men, they were a little more than property. And many of the Jews actually considered the Samaritans unclean. Well, Jesus changed all of that. Now, the Samaritan woman, she makes an interesting statement as they're getting toward the end of the conversation. She tells Jesus, you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. But in this passage, Jesus actually identifies himself to her as the Messiah. But with the coming of the Messiah, all this separation between Jew and Gentile, that was no longer relevant. Neither was the need to actually go all the way to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship. With the coming of Christ, all of God's children gained equal access to God through him. And so worship became a matter of the heart, not some external form. It was directed by truth 
instead of ceremony. So with that context being established, let's look at our text. Verse 21 there of John chapter 4. Read along with me. Verse 21, Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, as I'm reading this particular passage, there's a couple of immediate questions that come to mind for me. And they're fundamental things. But the first one is this. Why do we worship? I think the first and most obvious reason is because he's worthy. He's worthy of our worship. Uh, David in Psalm 18.3 says, I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise. Uh, Revelation 4.11, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. He's worthy. Worthy of being our delight. He's worthy of our dependence. He's worthy of our devotion. He's worthy to be loved, to be praised, to be exalted, to be trusted, to be followed. We worship him because he's worthy. We also worship him because his glory is our chief purpose. The primary purpose for which we were created. To glorify God and enjoy fellowship with him. Or as the Westminster Confession actually phrased it, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Solomon, later in his life, when he uh, wrote the book of Ecclesiastes and was kind of looking back on his life and all the mistakes that he made, he came to this conclusion, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. He said, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this, Fear God and keep his commands because this is for all humanity. Fear God, he said. Now that comes from a Hebrew word, yareh, which means a reverential awe. Be awe in front of God. You know, uh, have reverence for God. Keep his commands because this is for everybody. So we worship him because his glory is our chief purpose. There's a third reason. We worship him because... Well, as Jesus said in verse 23, the Lord desires our worship. The Father wants such people to worship him, Jesus said. Now, I want you to note one reason that doesn't appear on these lists of reasons to worship. One reason that doesn't appear, because I feel like it. You see, God expects our worship, whether we feel like it or not. His holiness warrants our worship. Remember, listen to a preaching lecture uh, from the late Stephen Olford some years ago, and he made an interesting statement. He said, pray when you feel like it, pray when you don't feel like it, pray until you feel like it. Well, to paraphrase him, I think that also applies to our worship. We praise him when we feel like it, we praise him when we don't feel like it, we praise him until we feel like it. Folks, 
We should be praising Him continually, whether we feel like it or not. We praise Him in the good times and the bad. We praise Him in the sunshine and we praise Him in the storm. We praise Him on the mountain and we praise Him in the valley. So those are the reasons why we worship. Here's the next question that came to mind. How should we worship? Well, we worship in spirit and truth, according to Jesus. Now, let's, let's drill down a little bit further and explore that. Uh, spirit, when we worship in spirit, that really means it's an affair of the heart. True worship must be in spirit. That is, it must be engaging the whole heart. Unless there's a real passion for God, there is no worship in spirit. But worshiping in spirit, it's kind of like, it's kind of like God is so awesome that we just want to high five him. That spontaneous worship just erupts from within. So worshiping in spirit occurs when we open up our hearts to him. Let's talk about worshiping in truth. Worshiping in truth means our worship is an affair of the mind. In other words, it, it, it's properly informed. Unless we have a true knowledge of the God that we worship, there is no worship in truth. So we open up our minds. We recognize him for who he is. And remember, our worship begins with the recognition of who God is. So it begins right here in the mind. Our continuing growing knowledge of him fuels the fire for worshiping in spirit. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, who was an 18th century American pastor and theologian, he summed it up quite, quite nicely when he said this. He said, I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections, meaning to raise the emotions, of my hearers as high as possibly I can, provided that they are affected with nothing but truth. You see, Edwards recognized that truth and only truth can properly influence the heart in a way that brings honor to God. So it begins here, it migrates here, and it's expressed in worship. Yet, you know, how many Sundays do we come to church and we just kind of, you know, go through the motions, do the same thing that we've always done in the same way we've always done it? Well, that's my tradition, Pastor. You know, here's the thing about that. When we lose sight of the reason that prompted the tradition to begin with, well, that tradition itself can actually be an idol that draws our attention away from God. So perhaps we should go back to the beginning and explore some of the fundamentals and understand several things. First of all, the meaning of worship. Okay, I'm going to give you a kind of a concept of, of what worship was in the New Testament and the Old Testament. We'll breeze through this pretty quick, but um, some key words here. In the New Testament, the worship that's being talked about in uh, verse 23, it actually comes from this Greek word, proskuneo. You don't need to remember proskuneo. Just remember the concept that it represents, okay? But when you see the word worship in English in the New Testament, 63% of the time, it's this word, proskuneo. And here's what it means. It means to express complete submission to, to, to fall down in worship, or to give reverence to. Proskuneo, pros meaning face forward, skuneo literally meaning to kiss. So, you know, in ancient Greek, uh, maybe a more literal use of that word proskuneo would be to describe a dog licking its master's hand. 
Uh, not to say that we're dogs, but I mean, but, but we're focusing on God the same way a dog is devoted to his master. Uh, we had a little uh, half rat terrier, half dachshund for oh, about 13 years or so named Lexi. And uh, Christy actually chose her at the pound, brought her home, and man, those two bonded. And uh, just about every time Christy would get in her recliner, Lexi would jump up in her lap and just do this. Just stare at her. I mean, sometimes for hours, just... But it's, it's a great picture of, of what this uh, word really means. Being devoted uh, totally, um, just like a dog's devoted to its master. So the New Testament concept for, for worship, it means complete submission and reverential devotion. Now in the Old Testament, there is a Hebrew equivalent to that term. Uh, that word is shakah. Now, this word is used 68% of the time that you see the English word worship in the Old Testament. And it basically means this. It means to, to suppress yourself or to bow down, to, to be low-rated. I mean, more simply put, it, it means to be God-focused and not self-focused. There is one other word in the Old Testament that's often associated with worship. I mentioned it earlier, Yahweh. It means to stand in reverential awe. Usually in the English, it's translated as fear. First uh, Samuel 12, 24. Fear the Lord and worship him faithfully with all your heart. In other words, stand in reverential awe before the Lord. Worship him faithfully with all your heart. Consider the great things that he has done for you. What I want you to understand is that worship was woven into the fabric of Israel's story in the Old Covenant. And it wasn't something that was just restricted to one hour a week on the Sabbath. It was a whole life attitude. You know, and, and likewise, our worship shouldn't be that way either. Uh, it shouldn't be restricted to one hour on Sunday mornings. Because as partakers of the New Covenant in Jesus, we need to view worship as something that permeates our entire life, our whole life. And we'll actually revisit that thought here in a little bit. Um, but we see in the Old and New Testament concepts of submission, reverential devotion, being God-focused instead of self-focused. And from that meaning of worship, well, let's move on to some problems that we create with worship. Let's talk about the misplacement of worship. This is kind of where things get a little bit messy. Now, here's one of the problems with that. We see we have an enemy who is very jealous of the glory that God gets. He hates our worship of God because he wants all the glory for himself. And so Satan will distract us. He will divide us. He will do everything possible to prevent God from receiving worthy worship. And we see this play out in, the, in, in churches in, in, a, in a number of different ways. I mean, we misplace our worship when maybe we're too focused on a place, you know, like the building. You know, maybe we're fighting over pews instead of chairs, or we're, we're fighting over where the location of the floral arrangement should be, or we're fighting over whether or not we should upgrade to a newer sound system, or we're fighting about carpet. And, and I know that sounds really petty, but I'll tell you, 25 years ago, Emmanuel Baptist Church in Duncan, Oklahoma had 36 people, three dozen people leave that church because they didn't like 
the color of the new carpet in the sanctuary. We get divided over stuff like that. It gets our focus off God. You know, where the building is, is concerned, you know, maybe we, we argue about relocation. You know, do we stay in inner city? Do we move to the suburbs? You know, the children of Israel squabbled quite a bit about crossing over to the promised land or going back to Egypt. Because let's be honest, they were sick, at, sick to death of manna. I mean, think about it. Manna bread, manna bagels, manna burgers. Um, Oh, and, and bub manna bread. And so, because they argued so much, because they were in such rebellion against God, he kept them wandering in the, in the desert for 40 years in order to keep them focused on him. So our worship can be misplaced or it can be a distraction when we're focused on place. It can also be a distraction when we're focused on a person. Now, I understand how, you know, if a pastor's been at a church for 30 years, he's built a, a loyal following. Sometimes what happens is that the pastor is so endeared to a church that people begin to follow the pastor more than they follow the Lord. And Paul talked about that, you know. Here's, you know, some people are following Paul, some are following Apollos, and some are following Peter when we need to be following Jesus, right? But that happens, you know. Uh, some pastors become so popular that, that really a cult of personality is created. But then when the pastor goofs up, then people get disillusioned. They, they leave the church because of that. Um, I'm going to tell you right now, church, I am going to goof up. You know what? No, let me back up. I already have goofed up, okay? I, uh, I've made multiple mistakes since coming here. I will make multiple mistakes in the years to come. It's just gonna happen. So don't ever try to place your focus or trust in me. I'm just a guy. I'm a flawed, weak human who makes mistakes. Um, I remember my first pastorate, I tried to, to be like this, you know, to be open and transparent you know, even vulnerable before the church to help them understand, hey, I'm just a guy, you know? And one of the church members, actually she was our piano player, she comes up to me after church and she says, you know, Brother Eric, people are very uncomfortable that, by that kind of talk because they not only expect their pastor to be on a pedestal, they expect him to come walking into the sanctuary carrying it under his arm. So don't ever get focused on a person more than you're focused on God because that's a misplacement of worship. Sometimes, you know, our misplacement of worship is because of arguments over positions, you know, doctoral, I mean, sorry, doctrinal um, differences, you know. Well, are you, are you Calvinist or Arminian? Are you amillennial, postmillennial, or premillennial? Oh, and if you're premillennial, is it historic premillennialism or is it dispensational premillennialism? Does it really matter? <laughs> you know, but we get, we get caught up in stuff like that. Or going back to the, the matter of uh, a place, uh, the fourth one would actually be possessions. You know, things associated with that place. Oh, did you hear what Pastor did? He removed the American flag from the sanctuary. <laughs> or, you know, Brother Poindexter, he removed the nativity set and he put it into storage. No, not the sacred nativity set. <laughs> we just get caught up in things 
that really in the grand scheme of things are, are just not that important. That's the misplacement of worship. Things that Satan likes to use to disrupt and to divide and distract from God so that God won't get our full devotion, our worthy worship. So those are the misplacements of worship. Let's talk about the methods of worship. The methods of worship. The practice of worship is basically, it's basically an outward manifestation of an inward attitude. And we kind of see it categorized in three different ways. And the first one is personal worship. Uh, that's important to your quiet time. Uh, David was definitely a private worshiper and the Psalms that he wrote during his quiet time really drove his personal worship of the Lord. Uh, there's what you see more often on Sundays, public worship as a church body, or we like to call it corporate worship, but public worship something that we do together in community with one another, public worship. And the thing about it is, you know, we, we think it needs to be associated with this and that, we need to use this technique and that technique, and the fact is, our worship doesn't really need a bunch of fancy trappings. In fact, when it comes to our music, hey, you know, just give me a melody that's simple, lyrics that are meaningful and theologically correct, and songs that aren't in the key of Tomlin. Ah, I can't sing like that. So transpose it down, please. Guys, you know, I, I don't care if it's Zach Williams' Heart of God or Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress is our God. I just want to give the Lord what he is due. Blessing and glory and honor and praise. That's why we call this a worship service, not a worship experience, because we're serving up to God what already belongs to him in the first place, glory. Now, our public, you know, our corporate worship is not only something that we should enjoy doing in community with one another as one single body of believers, but think of it this way. Our public worship is also heaven practice. It's heaven practice. It's practice for what believers are going to do together one day in heaven. Now, our public worship, you know, it can take on multiple forms. On Sundays, we, we worship through the spoken word. Often if we do uh, congregational scripture readings together uh, or the taught word in our life groups, the, the proclaimed word um, from Sunday's preaching, we worship through our giving we worship through prayer. There's multiple ways, but let's be honest, more often than not, when we're talking about worship, we think of it in musical terms, right? Of course, that's one way. But Paul addressed this in Colossians chapter three, verse 16, Paul said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now think about that. We talked about worshiping in spirit and in truth. How do we worship in truth? With the mind. Well, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's informing the mind. He says, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to the Lord with gratitude in your hearts. Or the parallel passage that Paul wrote in Ephesians 5 says, making melody to the Lord with your heart. 
So let's explore that a little bit. Teaching and admonishing with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. So in other words, singing to the Lord, right? 259 references to singing, singers, uh, sing, songs found in the Bible, all of them in the context of worship. Now, according to Colossians 3 here, that singing includes three things, okay? Psalms, and a psalm is basically this. It's a sacred song that's sung to musical accomplishment. A sacred song sung to musical accomplishment. Now, our sacred songs, they, they take on different forms, right? A lot of our uh, classic hymns of the faith have, have deep theological richness and teach us about the nature of God. And they're driven by Scripture. If you don't believe me, look at the scriptural index in the back of a hymnal. Many of our contemporary praise songs are basically Scripture set to music. It's important for us to have that, to be able to inform the mind and thereby affect the heart so we can worship in spirit and truth. That's why it's important that the, the things that we sing on Sundays need to be doctrinally and theologically sound. Get this. Most of what you learn, I mean, most of the theology that you get when you come to church, most of your knowledge of God and His nature, they come from the songs that we sing. Now, when I'm up here on Sunday mornings, I, I try to teach in a compelling way and uh, open new truths to you from the Word of God. But let's be honest. When you're going to the car after the service is over, you're not humming my three points in a poem. You're humming the songs that we sing on Sundays. And that's where you get most of your theology. That's why it's so very important that the stuff we sing be theologically sound. And that's one of the great things I appreciate about Annika. When she first came on our radar as a potential candidate, uh, I called her and we talked on the phone for about an hour. But the second half hour of that conversation was basically her grilling me about the church's theological takes on this and that, our doctrinal stands on it, because she wanted to know that this was a doctrinally sound church. That's the kind of person you want leading your worship, someone who's serious about getting the right message out in the songs that we choose. So we got psalms, we've got hymns. And the primary difference between a, a psalm and a hymn really is that the psalm just, it denotes musical accompaniment. The, the literal meaning of hymn from the Greek, it means a song of praise addressed to God, okay? Now, here on Sunday mornings, we sing a lot of songs that testify about God, about His love and His grace and His mercy, and those are all a very important part of worship. Because if nothing else, they serve as a testimony to unbelievers, to the goodness of God. But the most intimate form of worship comes from singing those songs which directly address God and thereby place our focus on Him. Songs of praise addressed to God. So we got psalms, we got hymns. Here's a third one, spiritual songs. Now the word song, it comes from the Greek ode, from which we get the English word ode. Um, and it's really a generic term for, for any words that are sung. And Paul, what he did in Colossians 3 was to add the word spiritual to it. Uh, because it means that, that, that these are songs that are sung specifically in praise to God the Father or in praise to Jesus, God the Son. 
So that's the singing. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. There are other manifestations of our worship, outward manifestations of an inward reality. Um, in some churches, it's the clapping of hands. And usually when you go into a church for the first time, you can tell if they're happy clappy or if they're the frozen chosen. Um, <laughs> but I did a, a quick uh, word search. Uh, I found about 11 different references to, to clap, clapped, or if you're the King James type, a clappeth. Um, but almost every single one of those refer to praise to God. So therefore, it is a scriptural concept to clap as a form of praise. Uh, Psalm 47.1, clap your hands, all you people. Shout unto God with the voice of triumph. So it's scriptural. Get this, though. It's also symbolic when we clap. Okay? Not to wear you out with too much, uh, you know, Hebrew and Greek stuff, but that word clap comes from a Hebrew word, taka. Okay, not taco, taka. Although Christy actually had a client who used to call him takas all the time. I don't know what was up with that, but taka, not taka, taka. Uh, but in its original use, the word meant to drive a nail or a stake through. Now, as you read the Old Testament, you're going to find some instances. I think the one that stands out most clearly is in Judges chapter 4, where a stake has been driven through an enemy's head. You remember that story of uh, Jael, the, the wife of Heber the Kenite, and uh, this enemy commander, this captain uh, of the, this invading force named Sisera, comes to their home. And she waits till his guard is down, he goes to sleep, and she drives a tent stake right through his temple, y'all, all the way into the ground. That's a very literal use of the word taka. But you see, in the context of worship, that clapping, it symbolizes victory over Satan. It's like we are driving a stake through the devil's head when we clap and give God honor and praise that way. You know, there's, there's other uh, outward manifestations. There, there's the lifting of hands. Um, some of you are thinking, oh, preacher, you're, you're getting all holy roller now. Uh, it's actually scriptural. There's about a dozen different res references in the Bible to the raising of hands, and almost every single one of them is given in the context of, of worship. So that's a scriptural act, but it too is also a symbolic act. Uh, think of it this way. You, you watch the old cop shows, you know, and the good guys have got the, uh, they've got the villain cornered somewhere. And one of the policemen takes out his bullhorn, and what does he always say? Come out with your hands up. So it's really a symbol of surrender. Surrender. It can also be a symbol of blessing. It can be a symbol of victory. I mean, think about it. You know, when one of the Arkansas Razorbacks makes into the uh, end zone, which wasn't a whole lot yesterday, but when they make into the end zone, what does that official do? Touchdown! Yes, it's a symbol of victory. It's a symbol of love. It's a symbol of dependence. I mean, when your kids were just toddlers, say about two years old, before they really developed language skills, you know, they had different ways of communicating. And the kid would toddle over to mom or dad and do this. Now, what does that signify? Hold me, daddy. So it's a symbol of dependence. What I'm getting at is that different people have different worship postures, okay? 
Some people like to amen and hallelujah. I'm one of those people. And uh, I'd like for y'all to be more of those people. Uh, so, uh, to amen and hallelujah. Uh, some people clap. Uh, some even during the, the slow songs, which is a little bit distracting at first. You know, when you're singing a slow song and someone's over there, and they're usually not even clapping in tempo with the song, but it's just their love for God prompts them to clap. Some, yes, raise their hands. Some stand in honor before God. Some kneel before God. Thing is, more often than not, if we are truly worshiping God in spirit and in truth, those are just expressions of worship that are prompted by the Holy Spirit. That's why different people have different worship postures. So we've seen that the, the, the categories of worship include the, the private personal worship, <clears throat> there's the public worship, but a third, third, a third one, and I seem to be stuttering quite a bit this morning, so. I don't know if it means I didn't get enough sleep last night, too much dry mouth, or I'm trying to think ahead to the next point. But the third one is perpetual worship. To worship God in spirit and truth. That's really only the how part of worship. With perpetual worship, we need to ask the what question. What do we actually worship with? I mean, you know, besides our, our voices and our, our hands and our, our instruments and, and that sort of stuff, what do we worship with? The answer to that question is our lives. We worship with our lives. Mortimer Adler was a 20th century philosopher. Uh, he came to know Christ in his adult years. In addition uh, to many other things, he was also on the board of editors for the Encyclopedia Britannica. So he's quite the scholar. But he made a very astute observation one time. He said, I was made by God for God. If I understand anything at all about his character, his majesty, his pursuing love for me, even in a general sense, my first response should be to give my life to him. That initial offering of our lives is our very first act of worship. And it's a picture of how our lives need to be continually offered to him in worship. Paul said something similar in Romans 12.1. I beseech you, my brethren. That's the King James Version. Your version probably says, I urge you. I urge you, my brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So offering your very self to God and your conversion, that was your first true act of worship. So continue. Continue to offer your bodies. Continue to offer your very selves to God every day. That's true worship. And it's simply our number one priority in life. We find that our reason for existing is to worship Him. We exist for His good pleasure. Um, it's really funny. One time, uh, Satan was seen standing outside a church building on a Sunday morning. Somebody recognized him for who he was, believe it or not. And uh, inside the church building, people were, they were singing and they were praying and they were listening to preaching. And, and a passerby who noticed Satan standing there, he stopped and, and asked him, hey, does that, does that actually bother you? And with a just 
demonic sneer on his face, Satan laughed and said, no, you know, they get that way on Sunday, but they'll be back to normal on Monday. It's just a little habit they've acquired. God save us from such a habit. Man, our worship is meant to make a difference in who we are and how we live all day, every day, not just on Sunday mornings. Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So if we're going to worship God correctly, we need to do it in a way that brings him pleasure. So let your very life be an act of worship. So here in John 4, Jesus, he says that we're to worship God in spirit and in truth. It's a love affair of the heart, it's a love affair of the mind, but if we can't open up our hearts and minds to God, we can't truly worship. Folks, don't, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna give it to you straight. Don't ever come to me and say, well, I didn't get anything out of that worship service because you know what my answer is gonna be? What did you put into it? That's what I'm gonna say. See, what you're really saying when you say something like that is, well, I don't have an intimate enough relationship with God to maintain an attitude of worship all the time. Here's a big thought for you, church. Worship is not for you. Worship is for God. Well, you know, preacher, I didn't like the drums. Or the guitar was too loud. Or I really don't like the sound of the organ. Or why can't we sing more new songs? Or why can't we sing more old songs? Or why can't we be more traditional? Why can't we do more Southern gospel? Why can't we go more contemporary? Here's an idea. Instead of getting hung up on our preferred methods of worship, why can't we just worship God? No, no, preacher, we need more Stamps Baxter. Baxter. We need more uh, Bill Gaither. Oh, no, 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 no. No, we need more Chris Tomlin. We need more Matt Redman. We need more Phil Wickham. You know what we need more of? We need more Jesus. That's what we need. If you're going to live your life as a whole act of worship, if your whole life is going to be about worshiping him, I mean, really, should it even matter? I mean, if your worship is truly God-focused and not self-focused, then you should be able to worship regardless of musical style or song selection or method. I mean, to a mature, blood-bought, spirit-filled believer, it shouldn't matter. Methods of worship, you know, again, they're just outward manifestations of inward joy, right? So we need to examine ourselves and say, all right, what's, what's causing the joy? You know, is it, is it a style of music that I prefer? Well, you know, I just couldn't worship. That was too loud. That was too slow. That was too old. That was too bold. Blah, blah. Or is the source of our inward joy actually the Lord? There was a Scottish, a 20th century Scottish theologian named Sinclair Ferguson who described it this way. He said, my pleasure in worship is not the goal of my worship, but a byproduct of the pleasure of the God that I worshiped. Or as uh, Phillips, Craig, and Dean put it very well about 20 years ago, they said, I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you. 
I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it when it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. You see, church, our methodologies will change. They'll change. Music styles change. I mean, you really want to see a study and change? Study, study church music over the last several centuries, beginning about the 17th century. You'll see it's just one example of change right after the other with each century that followed. It's a study and change. So yes, things are going to change. Methodologies, music styles, outreach techniques, education methods, they're going to change. Here's what's not going to change, church. At Beach Street First Baptist Church, the gospel will continue to be preached and Jesus will be proclaimed and people will be saved as we lift his name high. People will be discipled. That's a promise. And, and, and I acknowledge, I concede that, you know, some people who are what we would call seekers, they come to church for different reasons, okay? For some people, it is the music, or it is the children's programs, or it's the youth ministry that brings them. But you know what? It's always the gospel that keeps them. And that's something that's never going to change here. So I encourage you, as a church, let's worship him together. Not multiple tribes under one roof, but one single tribe, a family of believers. Let's worship him, not just with our words, not just with our voices or our hands or our instruments, but our very lives. Let's open our hearts to God and live with a perpetual attitude of worship, worshiping him in spirit and in truth. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you, and you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.